Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open to Exodus chapter 20, the second book in your Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you today, then we would love for you to have one. If you'll just slip your hand up, we have some people that will bring those to you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that one home. Uh, We're going to be looking at a new sermon series over the next couple of weeks called The Big Ten. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments and uh, uh, seeing what God says are what He uh, he put in place is the most important ten top, top ten things. And so as you turn there, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a report. Uh, last week, I appreciate all the work that you guys did to uh, be here and bring your friends and family and to be a part of this worship service. Uh, we had our highest attendance here at Spearfish, and so we're excited about that and what God did here. And then many of you have been working and praying for Belfouche, and we're just excited because uh, had a great service there. Uh, the building was not completely done and everything wasn't perfect, but uh, it was definitely a wonderful service and we saw over a hundred people come to that service last week. So thank you for praying for that and for those of you who've been volunteering. And, and again, we want to continue to be praying about how not only we can take the gospel to this city, but to be taking the gospel to cities across the Black Hills so that God can, can reach out to people who need Jesus. Today we're, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when I've heard this preached, it's not always been in a very positive light, and it's all, often come off as maybe a set of rules that I have to follow that are meant to press me down. But I want you to know that that's not how God intended this to be, and so we're going to look I- I- at these uh, these 10 laws that God set in place and why he did that and how they apply to our lives. In the culture in which uh, Jesus grew up, in the culture in which God gave this uh, set of laws to, the nation of Israel took serious the ways of God, the law of God, and what is called the Torah or the first five books that are in your Bible today. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God set in place that these were supposed to take prominence in your heart, in your life. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today shall be upon your hearts So impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The law of God was central to the Jewish culture. They literally made it a part of every aspect of their lives. They taught it to their children. They didn't just send their kids to school or to church to learn about the law as fathers and mothers, as leaders in their home, as leaders in their work. They made the law a central part of their belief, not only in what they mentally understood, but in, in, in their heart language and how they lived. The rabbis, <coughs> excuse me, who would teach the children in school would teach the law. Parents would teach it in the home. 
The culture would engage it and encourage it. It was a part of life. It was not only honored, but it was expected to know and honor the law of God. They taught that you should learn the Torah. In fact, many people memorized the first five books of the Bible. So if you say, Pastor, I have trouble memorizing a few verses, imagine memorizing the first five books of the Bible that you hold in your hand. But they mainly and emphasize especially that you should memorize the Ten Commandments. So the rabbis, the teachers who would teach the children, after five five or six years, would would as as they described in one Hebrew writing that I read, that that they would stuff them like an ox with the Torah, with the law, so that they would know God's word. They would even use an exercise that I read out of one example, where the rabbis, as they would talk about the law of God, especially the Ten Commandments, that they would place honey in front of, front of the children. And as they talked about the Ten Commandments of which we were supposed to live by, they would take honey and they would put it on their lips. And they say that the Word of God, the law of God, is like honey on your lips. You see, the Ten Commandments are not meant to be something that brings you pain, that brings you heartache. It is meant to set you free. The Torah really was the way, the truth, and the life for that Jewish culture. So in Mark chapter 10, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, but Jesus, I have memorized the law. The people around him may have snickered because most people memorize the law. (laughs) Many people knew what the law was. It was not impressive that he had memorized the law. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus upsets the apple cart when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because what had happened in that culture is God had given the law. God had given the commandments. And man had messed it up. And so when, he, when Jesus came and he began to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I have come not, not to do away with the old law, but to fulfill it and to strengthen it. Because they had taken God's law and they had messed it up. We do that as humans. God, in, in the fourth commandment, in 39 Hebrew words, said that, that man is supposed to take a Sabbath. Man is supposed to take a rest. We'll talk about that in a minute. And God said in 39 words, man took that and made 39 divisions and over 1,500 rules of how you could mess up in, in disobeying the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound exciting to me at all. I don't need 1,500 rules. I can hardly remember three. My wife says that the clothes go in the hamper, not on the floor, okay? I, I, I have trouble keeping up with you. And so what man did is take what God had set in place, and he, he messed it up. He made it harder. He made it literally impossible to follow. That's not whatever, that's not what God ever intended. Now I want you to look at Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 and 2. It says, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
and out of the house of slavery. Now, before he ever gives the Ten Commandments, he pronounces who he is. It's an announcement of his authority. He says, it is me. I want you to feel safety and peace. And then he uses that language that we've heard in previous chapters. He says, I am, I am the God. I am, in in the Hebrew, I am Yahweh Elohim. I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the uh, preferred name of God. It is described as one writer this way. He is the great I am, the sovereign and almighty Lord. He is the supreme, self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God who bound himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the unbreakable promise of his covenant. He says, I am Yahweh. I am your Lord. I am the covenant-keeping God. When I make a promise, I will keep it. It is me. I am Yahweh. And then he says, I am Elohim. And so that, that word in Hebrew means that I am the strong God. So in in that one sentence, in that one phrase, God says, I am the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, protector, uh, healer, creator, and I am the God who has the power to back it up. I want you to know it is me. I am the only God. And and then, in the second half of that verse, he, he gives kind of a resume just in case you didn't get the first half and that wasn't enough. He said, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of Egypt. I am the one who has brought you from slavery and set you free. Now God said all that, I believe, so that they could remember that they were under the authority of the Almighty God, but it was a God who cared about them. It was a God who wanted them to experience life, as John says, and life to the full. Jesus came to bring life. God wanted to bring life. But the names of God are important before we ever get to the law. Why? Because when you begin to understand a couple of things, like like the character of God is meant to love and guard you. God said, I am Yahweh Elohim. I am here to protect you as a father would his children. I want to keep you from harm. I want you to avoid having the problems. I am the sovereign God, as we have talked about. I I have all power, all control over all things. One writer said said it this way, that God has the ability to speak because of this. Listen. Through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, God is our sovereign Lord and very own Savior. And thus he has the right to claim legal authority over us. The law comes from God, who is our Savior and our Lord. God comes and he has the legal authority. He's paid the price. He has the ability to speak into our lives. He's also the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. I am with you. I will keep my word. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
But lastly, I, I want you to understand the name of God is important because it's meant to bring you liberty and freedom. It's meant to not bind you. You see, the law was not meant to harm, but it was given in love. The Ten Commandments are given as a gift, not as a punishment. The Ten Commandments are given as a gift, not as a weapon. God's Word is given as a coat to keep you warm, not shackles to bind you. Unfortunately, many of you in this room have had the Ten Commandments or God's Word or the law used as a weapon in your life, and I want you to know that is a misuse of what God's intentions were for you. His law was meant to protect you. One writer said it this way, Law-keeping is not an attempt to win God's admiration but to, and to put Him in our debt, but the form and substance of grateful personal response in love. My favorite pastor, one of my favorite pastors, Adrian Rogers, who's no longer living, says this about the Ten Commandments. He says that they are rock-ribbed and iron-clad, but they are not cold, rigid restrictions. Properly understood, the Ten Commandments are the liberating laws of life. Do not be afraid of God's holy law. Don't let legalism make the law a burden. And do not allow license to make the law irrelevant. In legalism, the law is our master. In license, the law is my enemy. But in liberty, the law is my friend. God has given us the law to try to save us from our own destruction. The best way that I know how to explain this to you is as a father, there are moments when we must let our children live. Not like, I'm going to kill you, but let them live life. I have a daughter, Addison, and Addison uh, was born with some eye um, problems. She doesn't see depth perception. And so when kids are growing up, you put them on a bicycle. Well, I'll just tell you, I'm having this little freak out moment as a dad because I don't want my children to be hurt. And my daughter doesn't see depth perception and she has problem with distances and, and these issues. And so when she's on a bike that has training wheels, I feel safe. But she outgrew the training wheels and she wanted to be like every other kid. And we had brought her up in that way and never treated her different. So she really didn't recognize that there was danger. And so I, I sat down with her and, and, and I explained to her the, the way to ride a bike and the, the brakes work this way and the steering goes this way and, and you got to stay out of the street at certain points and you have to watch for cars and you have to listen to the things going on around you so that you aren't hurt. But at some point, the training wheels had to come off. And I had to stand behind her riding her bike, and eventually I had to let go so that she could begin to ride the bike on her own. Now, if you've ever done this as a parent or as an adult to a, for a child, you know that there's that moment that you can just see the crash is coming. As soon as I let go, they're going to crash. They're going to go about 15 feet and they'll wreck. Well, you did it, I did it, and we all learned to ride a bike, and they'll survive it too. But as a parent, I didn't want to let go because I didn't want my daughter to be hurt. But guess what? She fell down. <laughs> she skinned her knee. I picked her up and she learned how to ride a bike. See, what God has done for us 
is he's given us all the rules. He set us down and he said, listen, this is not meant to restrict you. It's meant to prepare you and to protect you so that you can ride on your own through life as you were intended to. And at some point, God pushes you off and you're on your own with the law. You see, God said, I am the Lord your God. I have set this all in place so that you can learn to follow me. Look at verse 3. Then he begins to give us the commandments. He says, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Make no mistake. God is a jealous God. Make no mistake. There is no equal to him. And he said, I do not want you, number one rule, to have any other gods but me. Three things I want you to see in this passage. Number one is this, that God desires the recognition in our lives. Verse 2 says that he has earned it and he deserves it. He deserves our respect. He, does, he has earned our attention we should pay attention to him. There have been some people who say, listen, pastor, if, if, if we had God's ear, maybe he should have rewrote this and said, listen, there, uh, there is no possibility, there's no reason for there to be an atheist. And God should have put that in the Ten Commandments. Well, he took care of that in another place in Scripture. If you look up Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, in one half of the verse, God says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool, okay, fool. So if you do not believe in God, the Bible says that you got some serious problems about who you are because you were created for and live in a world that was created for the, the presence of God and the glory of God and the rejoicing and praising of that God. And so God didn't have to write in that the atheist, uh, we, we, should, we should write them off. He says, they will understand one day, either here or now, that I am God. No other gods but me. So the first commandment is complete. It, it is what it should be. It says, one God only. God wants us to pay attention to him. But then our lives get out of whack and say, but, but God, I want to live my life my way. I want to do things the way I want to do them. I want to believe that there are many roads to heaven. I want to believe that, there, that if I'm nice enough and I do enough good acts that I can get to go to heaven when I die. I want to believe, and you can just fill in the blank. Well, here's where I want to set you straight. Somewhere along the way, we misunderstood and thought that we were in control. But this is not a democracy. God is in control. He has set the rules. He is the only God. We don't get to choose. We can wish that there were many ways to heaven. I've heard people on TV and in the media say that there are many ways to heaven. Guess what? You can say that whatever you want, and it doesn't make it true. The only way to heaven, the Bible says, is through the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. That there is one way to heaven and, and one way only. There is one God and one God only, and he deserves our respect. Secondly, God desires separation. When you study the false gods of, of the past and the present, you see that they are oftentimes tied to our sin or to our vices. God cannot be a part of sin. When we 
talked about the Easter story last week and the sins of the world are poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God turned his back because he cannot be a part of sin. So what we do in our actions is that we try to set in place things that we worship so that we feel better about the bad things that are going on in our lives. God has to be separate from that. He says, listen, verse 3, there are supposed to be no other gods but me. And then God desires loyalty. One writer put it this way, your God is what you love, what you seek, what you worship, worship, and what you sh- serve. And it's also what you allow to control you. So when you think about your life, whether it's sin or the stomach, whether it is pleasure, possession, position, or pride, whether it is football, the factory, the family, sports, shopping, or uh, a plethora of other things that might take priority in your life and in your heart, you need to understand that there are supposed to be no other gods but the one God. And when those things take priority in your heart and in your life, that they are in a place that they have not earned nor do they deserve. No other gods but Him. Isaiah 42.8 says, I will give my glory to, I will not give my glory to another. It should be our desire, our heart's passion to give our our life fully to God. J.I. Packer says, heart loyalty is the soil out of which holy living grows. Heart loyalty is the soil out of which holy living grows. God wants to birth in you and in me a desire to worship and follow him. Many of us are more loyal to things that are around us than we are to God, if we're honest. Sometimes we're more loyal to our jobs than we are to God. We're more loyal to our families than we are to God. We're more loyal to our interests and our hobbies than we are to God. You see, gods are not always sins and vices that look evil. Sometimes they are harmless distractions that pull us away from having our focus on the cross of Christ. That's why a great example as a church We have to make sure that at the center of everything we do is the gospel of Christ because we can become busy in doing good and miss the best that God wants for us. And that's not only a lesson for the church, it's a lesson for you and for me. Because we can be busy in doing good things that have no kingdom or eternal value, which means it's not pointing anybody towards the cross or towards Christ. It's our job to be loyal To him. So verse 3 tells us who we should worship. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You have to recognize that there are idols in your life that will take over the place that God should be. Oh, but pastor, I don't have any statues in my house that I worship. You may not have a golden image, but you and I have things that we give our time and attention to. We give things uh, our energy. We give things our resources that really do not have the place of priority that they should. Our worship is about what more, more about what we do than what we say. Our worship is about what we value, our response to what we value the most. So the question that you have to answer today is where is your heart focused? What are you doing? Where is your greatest attention uh, going to? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and your greatest attention is not on Jesus, is not on following God's way in your life, then you are out of whack. You're, you're, you're out of order. No other gods but me and no idols before me is what God's word, the law, says. And God deals with this very harshly. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says in verse 5 that God says, I will deal with those who do not uh, worship me and I will pass it on to the generations after them. In other words, God says this is serious business. But then in verse 6, he says that if you will follow after me, I love what it says, verse 6, I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, if you will follow after me, then I will show you steadfast love. I will give you the best of what I have. I will bless your life in a way that you cannot even imagine. If you love me and you keep my commandments. So today, we have to seek God. Today, we have to worship God. Today, we need to honor God. Today, we need to focus our hearts on God. Because, listen, you become what you worship. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what am I becoming? Am I becoming more like Christ or am I becoming more like the world? You see, as a church, as, as believers in Christ, it's our job to turn rebels into worshipers. I'll tell you, that's fun. It's really fun. Some of you have been through that process. Some of you, before you met Christ, you, 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 were, you, you had your heart and your attention turned to whatever the world desired. And then to watch that heart be transformed by the power of the gospel and what used to be having its attention on the ways of the world now has its attention on what it was designed to be and worshiping and honoring God is an exciting thing. You see, as a church, as, as individuals who follow Christ, we get to be a part of that to help see a heart of stone turn towards a heart that follows after the cross. See, God's calling us, and he wants us to answer him with, his, with praise to him. Now, the next two commandments, I honestly want to spend about 45 minutes on each. So I'm gonna, you can breathe a sigh of relief. We're not going to do that this morning, okay? 
Good exercise, all right? I'm going to come back to them in detail, but I want to touch on uh, the third and the fourth commandment this morning very, very briefly. If you look at verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will, hold him, uh, will not hold uh, him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In 1995, the dictionary changed its definition, or actually added to its definition, of Jesus. It not only had the biblical description of who Jesus was, but it added to it, to the definition this, that the name of Jesus is an exclamation of surprise or dismay. What it did was, in its mind, define Jesus as a curse word. Define Jesus as more than just a historical figure in time of what, it, of what they thought it was. What happened in our society today is that people take the name of God in vain. They, they use the name of God to damn things. They use the name of God to be an expression of their life, not taking into account the power of the name of God. See, I, I, got a, I got a whole, I'm, I'm, I'm holding back because what I want to do is run for about 30 minutes on this. What, what we're missing is that when we say the name of God, when we express the name of God, with it comes the character and the love and the power and the almighty presence of that name. So we as a society have become so comfortable with hearing the name of God taken in vain that it doesn't even become a blip on most people's screen. It's really interesting to me that on TV today, you can curse the name of God more than you can take other curse words that they bleep out. Our society has become comfortable with taking the name of God in vain. God takes that seriously. Number three on his list, listen, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of God in vain. We need to be very careful how we use the name of God. Listen, as a believer in Christ, there is power in the name of God. As a follower of Jesus, there is power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be careful how we use that name. In the Jewish society that we have studied and looked at over the past weeks, when they would say the name of God, they wanted to make sure that their life was right because they'd seen people misuse the name of God and be struck dead, okay? I'm not too sure that wouldn't be a good idea in our society today, but I'm not God, thankfully, or I'd probably be dead, all right? God's name needs to be handled with respect. I'm going to come back to that in a few weeks, okay? But look at verse 8. He talks about the Sabbath. Verse 8, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, 
and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I don't do very well at this and I need some hard work on Sabbath, okay? So that's one of the reasons why I want to come back to it. I want us to walk through this in depth. But you need to recognize that your body was designed for Sabbath, to work six days and then to rest. That the earth that we live in was designed to work six days and then to rest. Spiritually, we need it. Emotionally, we need it. Physically, we need it. When we drive and drive and drive ourselves with no rest, with no recognition that we are under the authority, verse 2, of Yahweh Elohim, it, it, that we have, we have crossed a line that God says, I designed you for this way. So for many of us in this room who may work too much, who may not take the rest that is needed in our lives and in our, in our families, in our work, you need to know that it's more than just being driven. That when we do that, that we are actually saying that God's ways are not best. That we've got it figured out in a better way than he does. Now, guilty. I'm telling you, I'm confessing my own guilt to you. But, but God, I'm doing important things. I'm providing for my family. I'm doing better in my job. I'm trying to leave a good example for my children to work hard. Listen, you, can leave, you and I can leave that example in six days and rest on the seventh. And we will do better for the generations after us if we observe the Sabbath. Because God, do you think God needed a break after six days of creating the world? I mean, he spoke it into existence and he is God and he can do whatever he wants. Do you think he needed a break? No, he didn't need a break. He took a break to be an example for us of how we should live our lives. Now, <clears throat> here's, here's what I want you to see. These first four commandments... No other gods but me. No graven images. That you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. That, that you should take a Sabbath and rest is all circled around the idea and the understanding that if you do not recognize Him as God, then the other six are really just rules. When, when you begin to understand that I am to live my life my heart is to be focused on him in a way that I recognize and honor him, God, in the place that he should be. Then all the rest help fit that in place. We, we must come to a place in our life when, when we make him Lord. Here's what's the problem in the church. Listen to me. Too many times, we want to follow the rules without getting the reason for following the rules. Until you make Jesus Lord of your life, listen, you will miss the reason why God wants to protect you. You will miss the reason why God wants you to live in a way that follows after him. You will miss the reason why it's important for us to honor and to praise him on a regular and daily basis. Listen to what one writer says. 
He says, there is a constant battle for lordship in our lives. The truth of the gospel is intended to free us to love God and to love others with our whole heart. When we ignore this heart aspect of our faith and we try to live our, our religion, we try to live out our religion solely as corrected doctrine and ethics, then our passion is crippled and our lives are perverted. The best way I know how to explain this and describe this is found in Psalm chapter 1. If we're going to recognize that, that He is the Lord, He is Yahweh Elohim, He is the one that we come into uh, under His authority, under His guidance, if we're going to live under His law, then it should look somewhat like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. What you need to see is this. What God wants to do in your life and in my life is not to give you a set of rules so you feel like, oh, if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to get slapped on the hand. If I do the wrong thing, then it's a big X on me and God's not going to love me. Listen, the law is meant to protect you. I took my kids at an early age to the stove and I said, this is hot. And if you stick your hand in there, it will burn you. This is the street. Cars drive down the street. And if you step out in the street, a car could hit you. I tell you these things to protect you because I love you as my children. Listen, what the Heavenly Father has done for you is this. He said, don't be confused. There are no other gods but me. Any effort that you make to worship anything else is going to lead you to destruction. There's no need for you to, to build any other altars because this is the only altar that matters. There's no need to, to uh, try to use my, misuse my name because that will only bring out the, the uh, anger from me as God. So what I want you to do is to learn how to respect me, respect my name, live in a way that follows after me. And then I want you to take a day out of your week, every single week. And I want you to focus your heart on who I am and how much I love you and how much I care for you. And he goes on down the list, but at the, at the heart of this, you need to understand that what God says to you is this. I don't want you to be hurt. I want you to live life to the best ability that's possible. I want you to experience the best of things I want you to experience the wonderful creation that I created for you. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't want us to be hurt. He wants to protect our hearts. My question for you today is this. What do you worship? What's at the top of your list in your life? What, 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 are, what are the priorities that you have that maybe are coming before who God is, and how I live for Him. 
A life lived with misplaced priorities will only lead to destruction. I can tell you that from personal experience. So today, as your friend, as your pastor, I want to encourage you, give your heart to Jesus. Live your life with Him as the number one priority in your life. When you do, it doesn't mean your life will be perfect, but it means that there will be a great peace and a great purpose when you follow Him.